As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Boeing, have you... Boeing. (laughs) (laughs) Keep that in. Don't keep that in. No, keep that in. (laughs) Now you got to keep it in. I've said before, I have a soft spot for Boeing. So that's why I'm uh, mixing Boeing and Joe up. Okay, uh, Joe, have you seen Boeing shares recently? (laughs) Actually, I haven't looked in a while, except, you know, like we did an episode on Boeing about uh, three or four weeks ago. Uh, so not good. Uh, yeah. And they have not recovered much. So not good. So shares are down 20% since the start of the year, which is never a good sign uh, when you lose a fifth of your market value in about six weeks. But probably one of the more damning things that has happened recently in terms of the share price is, do you remember when the company announced it was pausing 737 production for a day and the yeah. shares went up like 6%? <laughs> That seems you bad know, when the market is rewarding you for not making well, your signature product. There's two funny things to me. And again, funny, you know, all the caveats that that entails. It's funny that Boeing has the reputation of being the company that's um, obsessed with its share price and pleasing shareholders. Airbus doesn't. And of course, Airbus has a much better share performance than Boeing. It's done phenomenally well over the years. And it's also just kind of crazy setting aside competition that Boeing is still nowhere near um, its peak in uh, 2019, despite what we know to be like a booming global market for aviation. Like that's one thing we know, like pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, just absolute boom. You always hear about this expansion of new airlines in the Middle East and Asia and et cetera. And so we know that there's this huge general bull market going on and Boeing doesn't seem to have capitalized on any of it. Well, not just a booming market in commercial aircraft, which you're totally correct, as as you observe, it has been um, a busy few years, but also we've had so much uh, defense spending. That's right. And things like uh, the IRA and things like that. And even with that happening in the background, America's premier aerospace and defense company just doesn't seem to have benefited from it. The share price has basically been flat for the past three years. Kind of amazing. And I think it's worrisome, right? Because, uh, you know, Setting aside, you know, the concerns of Boeing shareholders, and they're probably uh, pretty unhappy. 
Like, if the U.S. wants to be a big manufacturing powerhouse and, again, or be able to build more complex stuff domestically, it's really a bad sign uh, that uh, the sort of premier uh, domestic manufacturer for global markets, uh, one of only two companies that basically controls the commercial jet industry, like, is getting worse at building plants. Yes, absolutely. So we have previously recorded an episode on Boeing with our Bloomberg colleague, Peter Robison. He's also the author of Flying Blind, The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. And we talked about what the Alaska Airlines door blowout actually meant for the company and also the emphasis that Boeing seemed to place on financial performance and ironically its stock price versus a culture of safety and engineering. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there is so much more we can say about this topic and so much more to dig into. And I'm really happy that we do, in fact, have the perfect guest for today's episode. This is the guy, the aerospace guy back when I was covering airlines and aerospace in like 2006. He was the expert back then. And in 2024, almost two decades later, he is still the guy to talk to on aerospace. So I am very happy to say that we're going to be speaking with Richard Abulafia, again, a longtime aerospace analyst and managing director at Aerodynamic Advisory. So Richard, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, same here, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me on. Thrilled to be here. You know, I should say, in addition to being the aerospace guy and uh, just an all-round expert on this industry, you also have a reputation for telling it like it is. (laughs) And I think at this point, a lot of the cultural changes at Boeing um, are probably well-known. But you pointed to a pretty interesting development that I will confess I hadn't even noticed. Um, it, it happened late last year where the current Boeing CEO, David Calhoun, basically dissolved the company's strategy department. What was that about? Yeah, I mean, that's a mystery. But like all good mysteries, it just sort of lends itself to theorizing and indeed conspiracy theorizing. And uh, the most obvious statement was, uh, we don't have a future. Uh, (laughs) Not only was it the dissolution of the company-wide strategy department, but there was a wholesale gutting of a lot of the business unit strategy department. So it wasn't a devolution story. It was a we don't care story, (laughs) which was, of course, uh, as baffling as it gets. It sort of fits in with this nagging feeling in the back of my mind that the really awful performance is kind of okay to the folks at the top because ultimately their playbook is, well, about as deep as the Jack Welch GE playbook, which is if things go to hell, you simply break up the company. And Mm. in that case, you know, performance doesn't matter. The future and strategy doesn't matter. You simply think, you know, and and indeed maybe – the bad performance is, is kind of a, a plus in a strange way to regulators and everybody involved, customers, whatever. It almost becomes a, a relief when the company is broken up. That's, of course, an extreme departure scenario, but I can't think of any other explanations for doing that. Well, maybe what is a strategy department and what is it? So they said, I think, I guess it was in November that their um, their strategy boss was leaving, that the strategy teams would be folded into the business units that they support. What do these words actually mean? 
uh, in practice, what is what are strategy teams? I thought everyone did strategy in business. Yeah, everyone does, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of impossible to imagine a large corporation not having a strategy yeah. function. What is a strategy is about the future. A strategy is about allocating capital for mm. future technology development, for future acquisitions, for uh, allocating people, for developing people and and their skills and capabilities. Basically, it it coordinates resources across business units and within the business units, of course. It thinks about new products to develop, who their competitors are and are likely to be, and what key enabling technologies are needed to compete in the future. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is because you are well-connected in this industry, in addition to being um, an expert on it. But can you describe like the mood at Boeing at the moment or how people within aerospace and defense actually feel about this company? After 35 years, I've never seen anything like it, and it kind of resembles that common trope in horror films, very often the call comes from inside the house. <laughs> you know, I mean, I spent last week in Seattle and, um, you know, it's nothing short of horrifying, but it also sort of illustrates one of the, the strange aspects of this uh, the so-called crisis, which is that the problem is purely at the top. There are a lot of really good people at Boeing and a lot of really good products and a lot of really good technologies. You just have some people who are really, really bad at their job at the top. Uh, so, as you can imagine, people within the company, uh, and there are, again, many good ones, are often mortified by what's happening. Well, so I understand in the abstract, we could say things like, oh, the bean counters took over and they don't have a as much of an engineering culture or safety culture or they just worry about the stock price. And I get all like why that's all bad. And I guess on a sort of theoretical level, it sounds very bad. But why don't we talk concrete? If you're an engineer at Boeing today working on something... How is your life different than it was, say, 20 years ago? Well, there's no future, right? And, you know, the astonishing thing. Like, what do you, like, day to day, like, like, what, what, like, what is some, some boss, some boss three levels up has made decisions and various priorities have changed. So how does, like, how does it, like, manifest itself on a sort of day to day basis or quarter to quarter basis where it's not as uh, compelling of a place to work? Like, what has changed about the nature of the job? You need something to dream for. You need something that mm. represents the future. And, you know, Dave Calhoun, the CEO at the top of the heap, said about oh, a year and four months ago that, don't worry, we won't be launching anything new for at least another decade. Mm. Mm. Other than sheer demoralization and encouraging mm. the competition, I mean, the only way to explain it is that he's, he's the best CEO Airbus could ask for. Uh, but from the standpoint of being an engineer, getting to the heart of your question, Joe, if you're an engineer, you hear that. What are you working for exactly? You're coming up with work packages on the basis of, I don't know, minor tweaks of existing products, stuff that's already in the pipeline. You know, it's a tight market mm. for technical labor. You're probably going to be pretty interested in going to work for somebody else. So you might also notice that the demographics are changing because the young and enthusiastic folks who have a future are leaving or not joining. Uh, and that, too, of course, is a significant change in the, the fabric of your workplace. Mm. So you mentioned launching something new, and this kind of goes to the heart of, you know, I, I, I guess the current crisis within Boeing, but also the origins of the safety issues and the idea that instead of doing a clean sheet aircraft, as it's called, uh, Boeing decided to make amendments to its existing 737 model. 
And that resulted in the 737 MAX and its stablemates. And then that led to um, the crashes, which claimed, I think, almost 350 lives and the resulting uh, controversy over Boeing and what we're basically discussing now. But just to back up, could you maybe talk about what what are the decisions or the factors that go into whether or not to design hmm. a completely new aircraft? Well, I'm afraid I must disagree with the, that that narrative. I thought the Max was the right decision at hmm. the time. There were few enabling technologies for a new jet in that class, except turbines. So put a new engine in it. Now we didn't know then the sheer popularity of the middle market, but even if we did, I'm not so sure that would have changed anything. What was important is that the Max go ahead, and then the company do what it does every decade, launch a new product. And in that case, that product would have been a notch above the MAX. You know, as for the development of the MAX, there were cultural problems at play that led to the MCAS problems and the tragedies that resulted. But it wasn't economics. I mean, the economic difference between MCAS done right and MCAS done poorly is zero. Zilch. This was purely a cultural uh, driver that led to these tragedies. Hmm. Now, if you've got the max out of the, you know, okay, it was the right thing to do. It should have been done different, but it was the right thing to do. What should have happened next is they should have said, okay, look, back in the past, we had this other aircraft in that middle segment, the 757. It's dead. We need to think about a replacement. And they were thinking about a replacement. And that was the first thing Dave Calhoun killed when he came in. How would you characterize the cultural failings that led to those tragedies? Very simply, a disconnect between the people at the top and the people who are focused on the core business of the company, which is, of course, designing and building aircraft. You know, the folks at the top, and this started under Jim McNerney back in the late 2000, you know, first decade of the 2000s. He decided that uh, the supplier base and the workforce were mere disposable commodities that should be crunched. They should be regarded as one giant ATM. You take money out of them, there's no consequences. People will always want to work there, and uh, people will always want to be suppliers, our way or the highway. This was bound to have consequences, and it just got worse and worse through the 2010s. And as a consequence, you had a badly demoralized workforce. Now, as part of his strategy, of course, uh, McNerney back in the 2010s, it became necessary to replace people on the board with people who had no technical degrees. They were one step away from being complete randos who sold accordions. And, you know, the most farcical moment was Nikki Haley was on it, and she left because she didn't think the company should be taking government money. It's a defense contractor. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, seriously? Uh, So it was was a bizarre organization designed to rubber stamp and not much more. It's gotten a little bit better in the aftermath of the MCAS tragedies, but oh boy, that, that terrible culture of bad governance and that complete disconnect with the people who are charged with actually doing their jobs, a complete lack of redress and inability to push bad information. You know, I remember very well on 7807 when the 787 Dreamliner, their last clean sheet design, was rolled in and I was talking to McNerney and and he he told me, like, this plane's going to fly in September. Well, maybe October. Nope, it's September. I didn't say that. And it took someone, it took someone completely outside, way lower down on the organization chart to say, uh, actually, Richard, that plane is filled with sand. It's not flying for another year, which was correct. And 
he's not going to be caught in a lie. He simply had no way of knowing, and there was no mechanism with which to transmit bad information up the food chain. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. On the topic of culture, the other thing that tends to come up is the um, acquisition of McDonnell Douglas and the idea that, well, you brought in these new executives and they had much more of a a numbers-based focus. And I'm always kind of curious, is that true, first of all? And then secondly, why did they seem to wield so much influence within Boeing, given that they were the company being acquired? Like, presumably they were, you know... Mm in terms of social hierarchy on a lower rung. Yeah, it's a complicated one. And of course, the bitter joke told at Boeing is that, uh, you know, McDonnell Douglas used Boeing's money to buy (laughs) Boeing. You know, it's just (laughs) a bizarre chain of events. There were all sorts of interpersonal reasons, um, minor scandals and whatever else that resulted in a decapitation of some of the key Boeing executives. And as a consequence, McDonnell Douglas folks were there to fill the void because they were they were kind of squeaky clean <laughs> until they, too, were toppled. A couple of them were toppled by scandals, too. It was a bizarre chain of events. Now, is it true? Well, you know, there's no question McDonnell Douglas was far more financially focused. It had been on a 30-year glide path towards irrelevance because of this focus on, you know, finance and nothing more between, you know, the creation of McDonnell Douglas in 1967 and its absorption into Boeing. It was pretty clear the way things were going all those years. Having said that, it was still an aerospace company, right? (laughs) What happened in the mid-2000s with Jim McNerney and now Dave Calhoun is that Jack Welch GE culture, which has nothing to do whatsoever with aerospace. They might as well be hedge fund managers or somebody who's merely concerned with numbers and has no knowledge of the industry whatsoever came to rule. So, yes, you can put some of the blame in McDonnell Douglas people, but really it's more that Jack Welch influence or that, Hmm. I suppose, heritage of Jack Welch influence uh, about seven or eight years later. Jumping back towards the present, so you mentioned um, the uh, comment from the CEO last year, where they're like, "We're not, we're not in any rush to introduce a new clean sheet uh, plane." I assume that uh, that's kind of the thing shareholders like to hear because it means you know you're not going to have a big upfront budget that you have a lot of uh, no pun intended runway still left with the existing product set. What are um, how do they? What are the costs? of uh, launching a brand new product and how do companies think about the cost benefits of like when to launch one versus when to just try to, uh, you know, get more out of the existing product? Yeah. Uh, 
that's that's you know a contentious issue, an important area of discussion. I'm kind of an outlier. I don't think it would have mattered at all to investors, and indeed there would have been more positives than negatives. And hmm. you know, if you look at it, this is a company now with forty billion in net debt, uh, down from forty-five or so a couple of years ago. So to start a new program would be maybe two billion incremental per year in independent research and development funding for, you know, probably about six years, seven years, with overruns could go higher. Now, that's obviously a, a drag on shareholder returns. But put it another way, we're now in a situation where Airbus's competing jets are getting hundreds, thousands of orders. They're losing market share at Boeing. Wouldn't some investors have been galvanized by the sight of Boeing getting those orders with its new jet and said, what a great place to park my cash because this is a long-term growth story. Uh, I'm not concerned with dividends and buybacks. Um, I just really like the idea in, in a land where there's plenty of capital available, not a lot of good ideas out there. This well, is a safe bet. Well, is there some part of the market? So like uh, theoretically, is there some part of the market that right now Boeing would be competing better in? If it had a different product or like, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what the end buyer is, but if you're sort of dreaming what that or imagining what that next plane would look like, what is the end buyer that they're not tapping into that may be going to Airbus? This has been apparent for at least a decade. Okay. Basically, there's this middle market of about 200 to 230 seats, about 5,000 nautical miles. It's a fragmentation machine. It allows people to bypass crowded hubs and fly point uh -huh. to point where they want to go. Now, Right now, Airbus has a license to mint money with the A321neo. It's not very good at that, frankly, that mid-market, but it's the one product you can buy if you're an airline. So guess what? Everyone is buying it. The order book for the 321neo is now about the same as the order book for all variants of the 737 MAX family. And last year, after Dave Calhoun said, don't worry, we won't compete in that class, they sold a record 1,300 of those jets. And what's frustrating is it's not a very good jet. Hmm. Uh, you could defeat it the way Boeing has always defeated it. Boeing has had a second mover philosophy. 767-777-787-777-300ER, all of them were responses and they all did somewhere between 5 and 10% better than the jets they went against. They won. That's how the company conquered hmm. the universe. This just reminds me, I, it's kind of ancient history, but wasn't there an argument that when Airbus actually started developing the A320s, I, I guess it would have been in the 1980s, that Boeing could have and probably should have in retrospect just like immediately killed it and gone head to head by developing a new aircraft? Nah, I don't believe that because the 320 is a good plane, but, you know, the response to it basically, uh, well, it was right in the middle of the 737 34500 series, which continued to do pretty well. And they replaced it with the NG. It did amazing. So I'm just, I, you know, this is clearly, the MAX is clearly the last stop on the 737 line, no question of that. And it really is having, a, they're having a hard time scaling it up to be that middle market machine. Matter of fact, it's impossible. Mm. So there are limits, but the 737 in its, of itself, I think is actually a pretty good product. It's how it was executed. That's the problem. So this was actually going to be my next question, but Calhoun says they're not going to develop anything for 10 years, which could mean that they don't have a clean sheet aircraft flying like until 2040 or something like that. 
And at the same time, Airbus is taking massive amounts of market share. The two used to be, Boeing and Airbus used to be fairly evenly matched. That is definitely no longer the case. But A, what does Boeing do in this situation to catch up? And then I guess B, is there actually a desire to catch up? This looks like a glide slope towards oblivion. Because remember, it's not just the loss of market share. It's also the demographics. You know, engineering workforces have that muscle memory that needs to be maintained. And it's been since 2004 that they've launched, uh, since they've last launched a Mm. clean sheet design. They've done some good work since. But again, you're talking about an aging engineering workforce that's not attracting new people. Will they have the kind of core skills needed to create a new jet in the 2030s? I have no idea. That is such a fascinating point that, uh, I mean, we talk about it in some some context, this idea of like internal know-how, but I hadn't thought about this idea. If you have nobody or if it's been decades since you've done, you've started a plane from scratch, do you still have anyone there? Um, what makes a good plane? I have no idea. I fly. I don't really pay much attention. I never know what kind of aircraft I'm on. I, you know, if it gets me there, that that's fine. What When you say it's a good plane or it's not a very good plane when you're talking about the newest Airbus one, what makes a good plane? Well, you know, obviously safety is table stakes. Let's get that out of the way. But the most important thing is to acknowledge that your customers, and you need to talk with at least 15 or 20 of them before launching a jet, have incredibly narrow profit margins, which means if you can do specific routes for them that's, you know, 5 or 10% better, you win. That's what happens. This is. So we talk about industry. fuel efficiency, the the cost of mecha- like a mechanic, like how much repair they need, like a your vehicle. total operating costs. You know, it's a function of fuel efficiency mm-hmm. and, of course, maintainability, but really fuel efficiency. Now, revenue too is important. So things like belly cargo, the ability to put uh. revenue producing cargo under the hold of the jet, obviously getting um, passenger configuration right. That's absolutely key. And then there's the extraneous stuff like you know little frills, passenger comfort, you know blue lights, whatever. That that matters. All a whole heck of a lot less than the importance. Sure. The 321 Neo is, you know, the latest latest development of that 1980s era A320 family. It should have bigger wings to do longer routes, more powerful engines. It should have, you know, basically it should be more of a proper mid-market jet rather than a scaled up 150 seater that's trying to do the job. Is it catastrophic? No. That's why everyone wants it. You know, it's it's good enough. But the point is that in an industry where everyone has 2% profit margins, if they're super lucky and super <laughs> good, yes, you can beat that by 5 or 10% in efficiency, probably more like 15 or 20, I'm thinking, at this stage. So there's no reason not to build it. And when Dave Calhoun said, we're not going to do anything new, he said, well, we need at least a 30% improvement, which is complete nonsense in the context of how this business actually operates. I just I suddenly had a sort of blast from the past where I remembered, wasn't there a moment in I guess it would have been like 2007 or 2008 when EasyJet designed its own aircraft or said it was going to design its own (laughs) aircraft and it had like little propellers on the wings, but like weird propellers. It was a jet, but also propellers. Am I like completely misremembering that? No, and, 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 you know, just for comic relief, there's always that moment when a discount carrier pretends <laughs> to actually have engineers, which is always adorable. <laughs> just real quickly, when you say uh, the, the 737 MAX uh, family can't really be a great middle market jet, what is the constraint there? You know, it gets, hey, this is arcane, but 
you know, the clearance under a 737 wing allows for about 69 inches of fan. We diameter. like Arcane. So these yeah. details about clearance <laughs> under the wing, this is catnip for us. So sorry, oh, go, cool. on, go on, go cool. on, go on. Okay, let's These are the details we live for. So explain U- that. Ultimately, you know, an engine's uh, fuel efficiency is a function of its bypass ratio. The amount of air that goes around the core rather than through the core, you want a nice big fan. And yeah. uh, the A320 can accommodate 81 inches of fan. 737 maxes out, if you will, ha, 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 at 69 and change. So I, I'm conscious we've been talking a lot about the commercial aircraft side mm. of Boeing, but obviously uh, defense and military applications are a huge part of the business. Are we hearing anything from, I, I guess, the government and specifically um, the Department of Defense about recent trevise at Boeing and what they could actually mean for U.S. security? We should be. God, we should be. Are we? No. It's the strangest thing. Um, You know, obviously the Air Force in particular has had serious issues with the cost overruns and delays on the next generation tanker, the next generation trainer, Air Force One, whatever else. But in terms of a holistic look at what this means for the U.S. defense industrial base and national security, there's been a shocking uh, absence of, of interest. Speaking of uh, defense and speaking of the military purposes, this maybe this is like a little tangent, but I think it relates to some other things. I've been reading through some of your notes in preparation for uh, this conversation. One of the things that I did not realize previously is how many uh, countries have at some point uh, tried to establish a domestic fighter jet operation. And quite a few. Um, I don't know how many succeeded. Why has there like been so much of a proliferation of homegrown attempts to build a fighter jet? And then like, why do we still see so few companies around the world making inroads at all in the commercial space? Yeah, great question. Probably because the definition of good enough in defense is very different from the definition of good enough in commercial. I was wondering if that had to do with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you build a good enough jet that's for your own, you know, well, we can't, you know, we have to provide some kind of fallback plan in the event we're cut off, you know, uh, or there's an embargo or, or, or what have you, or we just want jobs and we're, you know, willing to take a few higher casualties as a consequence. Yes, the casual, you know, there could be a problem with higher casualties in the event of an actual war. That's why, you know, we look at these, new emerging players and often say, basically, it's the folks in the lab coats battling with the folks in the flight jackets. And the, the folks in the flight jackets want best value for money. And the folks in the lab coats want to do something cool in country. The commercial world is different. It's a global business. Mm-hmm. And again, if people have 2% margins, they're doing pretty good. So if they buy something that's 6 or 7% worse than the other guy, they, they might as well go and make children's confectionery or something. It's just totally pointless. So obviously, um, (laughs) Boeing uh, gets money from the government in terms of defense contracts and things like that. Although sometimes Boeing executives, as you pointed out earlier, uh, don't seem to want to recognize that fact. But how would you characterize, I guess, the differences in public funding between, I have to be careful how I phrase this question, between Boeing and Airbus? Historically, Airbus got a lot more launch aid, which enabled it to do some mightily stupid things, the A380 being perhaps the worst product launch in the history of the business. And theoretically, repayable launch aid wasn't what it sounded like. You know, yes, if you succeed, you repay it. But if you fail, you know, well, sucks to be you, taxpayer. End of story. (laughs) 
Boeing didn't really get that. You know, there was some NASA technology development funding, um, but that's pretty that's that's kind of ecumenical throughout the industry and just doesn't move the needle. Um, Airbus would counter that Boeing, of course, had significant defense revenue, and Boeing, of course, would counter that Airbus was not without its defense side, which is also true. So it, it became kind of he said he said you know it's just it 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 I don't think you can draw any conclusions. It is pretty clear that Boeing, to a certain extent, did best when it ignored the issue altogether. Airbus got enormous subsidies to build a plane called the A340, which was also a piece of junk. Boeing said, yeah, we're just going to do the 777 and we're not going to get government subsidies. And they clobbered Airbus on that. So I, I think it is, if you look at purely the numbers, an issue. But in the, you know, the real world of actually building and launching new products, it's a it's a bit of a non-issue. So as long as we're talking about government support or state champion um, uh, manufacturing companies, I have a very general question, which is, how does Embraer exist? And I mean that in the sense that there aren't a lot of advanced manufacturing companies in Latin America. There really aren't very many uh, commercial plane makers anywhere in the entire world. We know China's been working on it for a long time. How is there a talk to us? Could you tell me just out of my own curiosity, at some point, I want to do an episode on this about how uh, Brazil uh, managed to produce a, uh, a jet uh, a reasonably successful jet making company? Oh, we need another episode. Okay. I mean, I love this topic. I, I'm we, I would be. I would love to just do one. It's We've been talking real. about We've been talking doing about an episode do, on this, yeah. uh, an Ember uh, story. But what is this sort of like? You know, the the, the short, the tweet length version. The tweet length. Oh God, uh, 140 <laughs> characters. You can go a little longer. If you pay, yeah. you can go longer. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's right. Certified X or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, remember they did a bunch of incredibly smart things in the 1990s, but. For 30 years before that, they were a ridiculous playground for some fascist junta. I mean, nothing more. They got a couple of right products, and then they privatized. It became their own company, and they 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 became just absolutely the best aircraft, I think, company on the on the planet and by by some metrics. You know, I always like to joke if this was a, a restaurant, this would be the restaurant where chefs from all the other restaurants would go and eat huh. at, uh, after their. You know, it just has enormous respect. And they tend to get products right. The other thing they did, so that there was that aspect of luck after many decades of trying and not doing so good. But then also they did the exact opposite of what China is doing now. What China is doing is saying, you've got to transfer technology and we're giving you no intellectual property protection. So show up with your latest and best from, I don't know, 1979. And as a result, they're producing perfectly crap airplanes. Embraer said, actually, we don't want you to transfer technology. We want to integrate what you've got, kind of a Dell computer model, and you've got IP protection, and we're just out to build the best computer stroke airplane we can, and it's worked brilliantly. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. 
Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I just remember the first time I ever went to Paris was to attend an Embraer event. And it's funny you say it's well regarded because I remember going there and they had like it was in a fancy building and just sort of being blown away by the the optics around this particular company. But maybe talk to us about Comac uh, because I'm conscious we're sort of hitting um, all these different nationalities, but we haven't yet spoken about China. China, of course, making a big push into this particular area, in part for strategic and, you know, security considerations as well. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, Comac is sort of an insurance policy against autarky in the event of total decoupling between China and the West. At least they may be able to produce their own aircraft. The problem, of course, is that nobody had the conversation with President Xi that these aren't really Chinese aircraft. They're Western systems and engines and avionics all assembled with Chinese aluminum over them. So, you know, if there is decoupling, uh, (laughs) these things die quickly. Hmm. Maybe they'll rectify that by building their entire aerospace industry out. That'll take many decades and hundreds of billions of dollars. Good luck with that. Um, The other problem with with Comac, of course, is it reflects President Xi's desire to basically turn the economy uh, away from the private sector and towards state-owned enterprises, the exact opposite of what Embraer did. Uh, So there are so many. And it's all very frustrating because you look at China, great market, great talent. And great resources, the only thing they could be doing to screw that up on the aircraft front is what they're doing. <laughs> Wait, so they're bad planes? Oh, they're What's worse. wrong with them? Because I only, like, I mean, I, I know they're selling a lot more, but of course they're selling to domestic uh, Chinese airlines, so it doesn't say very much necessarily. They have put in applications. I think they do want to theoretically sell into the European market at some point. They're trying to get approval. But what is your assessment of where these planes fall short or why? Well, first of all, selling is one thing. Building is another. I mean, they've been selling for about 15, 20 years now. Okay. Uh, they do have some in the air now. So what is wrong? Yeah, they've they've delivered three C919s and about 100 or so ARJ-21 regional jets. The ARJ-21 was the first produced, mass-produced aircraft in China, jet liner aircraft produced in China. And it's massively heavier than where it should be and has systems that were introduced in Western jets back in the, well, the 70s. Um, You know, again, a reflection of of people's skittishness about transferring intellectual property with no intellectual property protection. So they're bringing their latest and best from decades ago. Now, the 919 looks a little better. We'll see if they build it in significant numbers. They have yet to establish the kind of massive global support apparatus, which costs an awful lot of money. Um, the 9192 is, you know, same design parameters, bring us your latest and best and no, we won't protect your IP. So I'm having a hard time believing that it will be a whole lot better. But again, they could change it all tomorrow. They could say, we're privatizing, we're giving you IP protection. All we want to do is be like Embraer. I'd be terrified. They'd conquer the world. This is kind of an unfair question, but would you rather fly on a 737 <laughs> MAX or a C919? Hmm. You know, at the end of the day, the safety of the MAX is in the hands of the regulators. And 
yes, the regulators can be under-resourced, but they do their job. And that they, I think we simply have the safest system in the world that speaks to that reality. Our regulators do their job. You know, for comic relief in all of this, you've got these politicians like J.D. Vance who've spent a lifetime trying to, quote, kill big government and now saying, wah, what's government doing for me? Why isn't it keeping me safer? Wah. That's a problem, right? They need more resources, pure and simple. Actually, this is exactly what I wanted to ask you because we did speak about the FAA a little bit with our colleague Pete, but would more resources for the regulator help in this instance? Because there were also accusations that like maybe it wasn't understaffing, but maybe it was just a too cozy relationship with Boeing. You know, it could could easily be, but more resources give you more relative power, uh, you know, to explain, look, we're going to be making your life very difficult and gumming up the works unless you play ball. Now, hmm. is there that coziness? If so, that needs to be understood and rooted out. Maybe it's not a resource. Maybe it's a cultural thing there, too. Uh, I don't see how more resources couldn't help. Real quickly on Embraer, because I realize I didn't I don't know this. It's still it's a really tiny company. Who is their market? Well, they produce what you might call somewhere in between regional jets and mainline jets. So you've got regional airlines like, you know, SkyWest or whoever, and then you've got a few mainline carriers here and there that also use. It's kind of a no man's land of a market, but a really good jet. They also have a significant military side. And then they've got a really superb and and successful business jet side. They decided Uh. years ago to get into that market. And uh, they've been doing really well there. On the C919, do we have, I mean, we must, but in, from a sort of spec standpoint, when it comes to fuel efficiency, maintenance needs per mile, whatever whatever metric uh, you like to uh, use, do we have good data on that? And do you have just like a sense on like on paper how it stacks up? Not really. No. I mean, it has Leap 1C engines from uh, General Electric working with Saffron under CFM. Um, which should be too radically different from the Leap 1As on Airbus and Leap 1Bs on Boeings. Um, but we don't know. There's just not enough data. Maintainability, no idea whatsoever. And the fact that it's only in service in extremely small numbers, two or three aircraft, means we, we just can't for some time. And again, it doesn't reflect the establishment of a giant support apparatus that they still need to do. So no, no data whatsoever. So expanding throughput must be difficult, even for Airbus, even with a huge order book, because they're probably only, you know, even if everyone wanted to buy Airbus tomorrow and sort of depart Boeing, you know, there's always so much you can build at a given factory. How much of a constraint is that on sort of short-term market share gains? And uh, does that put a sort of floor under Boeing's market cap, the fact that people need planes and it's not trivial to just sort of build new facilities to expand from an Airbus perspective? Absolutely. Because remember, it's not just the Airbus facilities, it's all their suppliers. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they've had a rough time uh, between, you know, all the challenges in the industry and the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else like that. Uh, so they're having a hard time gearing up. 70% plus of the value of a plane comes from the suppliers. Um so it's it's now the cynic in me yet again thinks that Boeing top management says industry with high barriers to entry, high switching costs, real challenge in ramping up at Airbus. We've only got a three year time horizon from our own standpoint here. So who cares? Customers have nowhere else to go but to stay with us as we figure out mm. how to ramp up. And when we get that, you know, operating cash flow resumed, we'll give it to investors 
they'll reward us. We can then exit and worry about someone else uh, cleaning up after us. Wait, how sticky is airline brand loyalty? Because, of course, you do have famous examples. Uh, Southwest obviously springs to mind and its entire fleet of 737s. But how difficult would it actually be for someone like a Southwest to just say, you know what, we're going to move to a mixed fleet and we're going to have some A320s plus 737s or even we're going to transition our entire fleet eventually away from Boeing. There's no loyalty at all. It used to be that there were, you know, sort of homogeneity virtues, if you will, in fleet planning in terms of uh, efficiency, right? Efficiency, training, logistics. That's all out the window because airlines have realized that, frankly, the ability to pay off two suppliers against each other gives you advantages when it comes to negotiating price. So, and that and the fact that very often airlines are virtual anyway, a lot of their maintenance provided by a third party player and ditto for their training means that frankly, it's just not that big a challenge to operate a heterogeneous fleet. And if you're like an airline like say Delta that has an in-house maintenance department, you're even using that as a virtue. You're basically establishing yourself as a kind of sustainment center of excellence for a whole variety of customers in the business. You mentioned price and of course, uh, the actual prices paid for aircrafts by airlines tends to be a closely guarded secret. So you'll see headlines that say like so-and-so orders X billion worth of aircraft, but that's at the list prices. And almost always those prices are adjusted or discounted. What are you hearing about discounts on Boeing planes right now? Is that something that's happening or could happen in the future? We're kind of a poster child for deflation in this business. You know, you look at the price paid for an A320 or 737, it's stayed shockingly consistent over the past couple of decades. A few ups and downs, but pretty, pretty flat, which means, of course, every year we're losing a couple percent in inflation. Um, that's not good. Now, lately, Airbus has gotten a bit more pricing power because of Boeing's problems, and Boeing has had to incentivize people for the massive delays, for the problems, the groundings, whatever. So, yes, it's very clear that there's a divergence in pricing power, but it's in the context of an industry that's uh, kind of gotten a bit deflationary over the years. So just to sum it all up, I realize we've covered a lot of ground yeah. in this conversation, but if, if you were to bet, what would you say Boeing's future is? How do you see this playing out? You know, uh, to quote Joe Strummer, the future is unwritten. Um, at the end of the day, the biggest mystery here is why the board hasn't acted and done the right thing or government or activist investors or somebody and said, OK, people at the top, there are so many people counting on you. They're all really good. And frankly, you're just not very good at your job. Please leave. Why hasn't that happened? If it happens tomorrow, they'll be on the long road back. We could be having a very different conversation by the end of the decade. They could even return to market leadership. If it doesn't happen, they'll lurch from crisis to crisis, disaster to disaster, hopefully not fatal ones. And um, it won't be a pretty story in terms of uh, revenue and market share. All right, Richard Abulafia, it was so good to, to talk to you after um, so many years. It was great to catch up. Thank you for coming on All Thoughts. Oh, really my pleasure. Good speaking with you too. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. That was great. Thanks, and we really Jim. at some point let's do yeah. let's do the Ember Air episode. Because I'm like fascinated by that story. And so if you think there's a full episode you want to talk about, oh, we can, God, we'll make yeah. it happen. You should go there too. It's it's a yeah. fascinating yes. place to visit. Let's go.
Joe, I want to say that was a fun conversation. It was. But, but actually, it was in some respects, but it was also kind of depressing. Definitely depressing. But there was a lot in there that I found very interesting. Perhaps the most important thing that I hadn't really thought about is the idea of getting out of practice of launching a new product. Right? Yeah. Because the idea that like, okay, internal know-how, we talk about that all the time in terms of just the day-to-day -day building. But then there's the separate thing of every once in a while, maybe once in a decade or something, you launch a new product, which is a different skill, upfront cost, R&D, all that. But if you go too long without doing that, then you have no one on the team who's done it before. No, and also just the sheer length of, of yeah. the development cycle for aircraft. So, you know, the last time Boeing launched something was literally decades ago. Um, and now the idea that, well, if they don't launch anything uh, in the next 10 years, then it could actually be, you know, you could have a whole generation of engineers that basically retire and are gone um, by 2040 when this thing is actually in the air and flying. It's just, it's kind of amazing the lead times and I guess how much the plane makers actually have to think on, on these super long totally. timescales. The other thing I found interesting, obviously the public funding debate has sure. always been a hot topic issue and continues to be so. But the idea of, well, even if there were cultural issues at the FAA, if you gave them more resources, at a minimum, it might end up with like more power for that organization, I think was the word Rich used. I thought that was kind of interesting. Interesting. You're so negative on the uh, on COMAC. That was sort of interesting because you just think like all these like Chinese manufacturing companies are just going to eat everyone's lunch. Maybe they're not. Uh, I think that's been a sort of long running yeah. question with planes um, for obvious reasons and the safety concerns there. But um, OK, well, we definitely need to do an Embraer episode and I'm down um, to, to go to Brazil if you want to. Uh, let's do it. The other thing I thought was interesting was he pushed back slightly on the clean sheet idea mm. for the MAX and the notion that Boeing should have designed an entirely new aircraft, which I also thought was kind of interesting and you don't hear that often. But in the meantime, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Kerman Rodriguez at Kerman Arman, Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot, Kale Brooks at Kale Brooks. Thank you to our producer, Moses Andam. For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have transcript, blog, and a newsletter. And check out the Discord, discord.gg slash Odd Lots. And if you enjoy Odd Lots, if you find these aerospace episodes useful, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, if you are a Bloomberg subscriber, you can listen to all of our episodes absolutely ad-free. All you need to do is connect your Bloomberg account to Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.